1: That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com.
0: What's up, party people? Welcome back to the WOMED. I am so pumped for the WOMED in 2022. And if 2020 has taught me anything, and, well, 2021 too, I may eat those words about 2022. This week, Jack and I welcome Dr. Danielle Bellardo back to the WOMED. We got to record this episode in person back in November at the dearest little Airbnb, the Mint Cottage. Honestly, I still dream about waking up there. It's that pretty. This one was so fun to record, and I knew Jack had a big girl crush on Dr. Bellardo. And honestly, who doesn't? But getting to see Jack meet these forces in real life has been so much fun and getting to finally meet my Instagram friend in real life brought some much-needed fun enormously back to 2021. I love getting all these NDE submissions. This week's NDE is from Jennifer Flavel. She writes in, Hi, Dean and Jackie. I've listened to all 100 episodes. Congrats on the milestone. And I love the content and overall vibe of the show. I have both a guest suggestion and a nurse energy to share. I recently decided to leave my position as a nurse manager to step back into an assistant manager role at a different organization. Many circumstances prompted this difficult decision to essentially demote myself after a year as a nurse manager of a COVID unit and the aftermath and current state of my organization this past year. The burnout has finally taken its toll. I just wasn't feeling like I could be an effective leader, nor could I support my team in ways that would also fulfill me. It's been so challenging to be optimistic with my team when I see the demands put on them to work more and have higher unsafe patient ratios, or see my manager colleagues working 60 plus hours a week and feel defeated every day. I'm excited for my new position, which is paying me more, working less hours, than as a manager that's wild, get sad and disappointed to leave behind a great team. But I recognize it's time to be a little selfish and get back to my bedside skills while still being the natural leader I am. Ah, girl, I'm so proud of you. And thank you for listening to all 100 episodes. My heart can barely handle it, honestly. If you need a shout out or have a dope ass NDE to share, you can head to the Womedpodcast.com and submit them there. Oh, sorry. Womed podcast, not the womedpodcast dot com. Sometimes I mess that up, but some jerk had stolen the womed podcast. Anyways, <laughs> you can always DM us your NDEs as well. But now, get ready for round two with the cardioelectric force that is Dr. Danielle Valardo. Um, y'all might recognize a familiar voice on. We have Dr. Danielle Bellardo back on the woman Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, I have to know, how's Arnold Schwarzenegger?
1: Oh, my gosh. The, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, the day I found out um, that Arnold Schwarzenegger was following me on Instagram and he only follows 140 people, my followers told me. I was like, oh, that's so funny because I clicked his profile and it said, follow back. And I was like, "Oh my god, he does follow me." I followed him back, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was crazy. And then after I posted that in my stories, people told me like a bunch of other random people, um, like Sam from Sam Hugan from Outlander? Outlander. follows me. No. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he does. Yeah. Like, then,
2: like is that like the Outlander guy? Like yeah, that's yeah, the guy. That's Jamie. Yeah, Jamie. Oh, my God. You have so many, like, moms and that then, are just, like, <laughs> drilling <laughs> right now. No,
1: I mean, what, and me. What's so funny is because I, like, it made me. Like, have far- you talked to him? So I have. He's super nice. Oh my He's God. super nice. Oh my God. He's really friendly, super nice. Um, But I, it made me super self-conscious because I never think about who follows me. And I'm just in my Instagram stories, like, you know, roasting, uh, you know, people that are spreading pseudoscience or all these things and like, and, and just kind of and being myself. And then I'm like, oh, I forgot there's actually people uh, listening to this. But yeah, that's hilarious. <all
0: I am. laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that, though. It has been so cool watching your platform grow, especially during the pandemic. Oh, thank you. you you're you killing it. You gave me a lot of empowerment to continue to keep posting about just simple things like telling people to wear masks and slowly watching my follower account dwindle, but oh knowing that I was doing the right thing and that there were other people in the medical community that were speaking out, and uh, especially at the start of the pandemic, like you were... You were breaking down really vital information and 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 giving much, much needed information to to the public. So
1: thank you so much. In the beginning of the pandemic, I so I have family in Italy. And one of my friends who's a um, a hospitalist in Milan was like, you know was totally sounding the alarms and in WhatsApp was just like, this is not like the flu. Like remember Italy got hit and mm-hmm. you know, China got hit and then Italy got hit. And she's like, this is not the flu. And so I started to get really worried early. And I remember even telling, I was um, in cardiology fellowship at the time, even telling my program director, when this gets here, like this is going to be bad. And he was like, oh, you know, we'll like wait and see, but I don't know. But I felt like just seeing like if it was happening in China and then it was happening in Italy, like why would the U S be spared, you know? And then it came to the U S and then we all got hit really hard in the Northeast In Philly. We got hit really hard. I actually spent my last few months of fellowship training of cardiology fellowship. I was supposed to be doing outpatient lipids and getting to, you know, finish my 10 years of medical training on like a chill note, but I got redeployed to COVID coverage and um, yeah, it was it was pretty wild to be seeing COVID affecting a vast, diverse population—people of all ages, people with and without comorbidities, people that are healthy in the hospital—and then come home to social media and have people tell you that it's not real. Wow, you know, yeah, that was the that's been the biggest
0: gut punch. Yeah. I think is people, especially now, it, it, at the beginning of the pandemic. People were being clapped for, you know, seven o'clock on the dot, people were outside on the balconies clapping and and now they're like, mm, I read on Facebook this and I don't trust you. Yeah. <laughs> it's true.
2: It's devastating. How did you get that call to like find out that you had to go back into the hospital and do COVID?
1: It was like we had COVID, like our hospital system had COVID meetings regularly. The hospital that I think we had the highest numbers in the beginning that I can remember. We had a lot of COVID patients in the beginning in, in Philly. And so in the Philly area. So what happened was we would have these weekly kind of COVID meetings with like, you know, the head of infectious disease and uh, emergency response, et cetera. And then. When they had to start um, increasing hospital coverage and doing, you know, rotations, the internal medicine residents um, needed more coverage. And so then the internal medicine, um, the chair of internal medicine, you know, contacted our program director. So it wasn't just cardiology that got redeployed. It was GI, Hemonc, you know, and uh, Palm cray Care. So fellows, everyone in graduate medical education kind of had to, you know, help out and do, do, you know. COVID admit, either admitting or um, ICU um, and stuff like that. But yeah, it was, it was, I can't, it feels like forever ago now, but, um, that the pandemic started, right. Doesn't it feel like, yeah, doesn't it toddler? Feel like it's, yeah. Wow. I didn't think of it that way. You're right. It's a toddler.
2: It does feel like it, it, almost like it feels like now, I think it almost feels like looking back, like that was like a movie or something. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. when you get those, like I rem- like you remember those first few days and then like having to make decisions about work and like masks and this and then talking to colleagues, like not knowing. It literally like when you look back, it feels like that was like a movie, like almost like it wasn't real.
1: Yeah. And it was super scary. So we had um, cardiology fellows from all over the US, from programs all over. We had a group chat, one on WhatsApp and then another one on Telegram. And you start to hear about trainees, you know, residents that were dying, fellows that were in the ICU. And then, of course, I'm sure you guys know so many nurses died. Yeah. So many nurses died Um, because trainees, you know, fellows, residents and nurses are really, you know the front, really the front front lines. They spend the most time with the patients often, not always there's attendings that also do in certain situations, but, you know, overall. And so that was the craziest part too. thinking, you know, young, healthy medical professionals were we're dying, and especially in the beginning when we didn't have masks. I mean, do you guys remember carrying a paper bag? Oh yeah, an N95 and saving it for two weeks? Like that feels like a lifetime. No,
2: I like saved that N95. I like have it in like this nasty bag in like buried in my office, being like, you know what? One day I am gonna like bring this shit out and like freak everybody out. Man, <laughs> this was the mask that got <laughs> me through months of the pandemic.
1: Insane. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, exactly. and
2: like um, I remember, like having the cloth mask that, like you know, or like there were so many different ideas on, like, oh, you should wear a cloth mask over your on ninety five to protect it, and then is it? But oh no, that's worse because it's like, oh my god, those early days of the pandemic, Wild. like, well, I'll never, never forget. Wild. Oh god.
0: Wild. Punks. And I wasn't. I mean, I can't speak to that because I wasn't bedside anymore. But just seeing what all my friends were going through, yeah. I was so angry. I was. I felt so angry. I felt angry that, you know,
1: that uh, and helpless. Like I, I just
0: couldn't do anything.
1: Well, you did a lot by sharing it on social media and with your followers and spreading accurate scientific uh, information. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that and sharing others who could accurately oh, <laughs> speak yeah. into it. Yeah. <sighs> uh, mm.
0: We were talking a little bit earlier before we started recording about diet culture. Oh, yeah. And you had mentioned a new medication that was just uh, FDA approved for weight loss. And I just personally just have to know more. My, um, my mom has struggled with her weight uh, for so uh, – I, I mean, ever since I was a baby. And I know it's led a lot to her – her depression. She now has asthma because of the excess weight that she's carrying. And it's made me very, very scared for her future, especially related to COVID that puts her at a much increased risk. She's vaccinated, but it's something I've really been worried about and struggling with, like trying to find a way to help my mom when regular diet and exercise has just been so difficult for her.
1: Yeah. That's a great question. And so I think that there's well, first of all, I'm glad your mom got vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, after I, I tell you about this, you should definitely talk to talk to her about it. Cause there's so many more options out there for weight management than than patients know. And I think that so My frustration with diet culture is that, you know, I am a pretty outspoken vegan, but I by no means think that a plant-based diet is going to, um, you know, reverse all of these diseases um, or versus keto diet versus paleo. Like I generally, you know, believe in guideline-directed nutrition therapy and all of that stuff. You can have a healthy diet that looks many different ways. The issue with diet culture is, is that everyone who's trying to sell something wants to sell you that their diet is best and that obesity or weight loss is a pick yourself up by your bootstrap sort of thing, and you should just be able to diet and exercise and lose weight, and all it takes is self-control and discipline. That's not true. So the more we learn about obesity medicine, um, the more we learn that there's so much more neurohormonal hormonal genetic and epigenetic components to this. And so I think that the shift needs to be, first of all, on um, obesity in general, needs to be destigmatized. So many of my patients come to me and they feel like when they can't lose weight using diet or exercise, that they feel like a failure or they feel like it's because they're not doing enough. And I try to explain, no, the research is actually showing us that there's actually certain genetics that put you, make you more disposed to being um, at a, a higher weight. There are certain epigenetics there's certain environmental um, issues with regards to your food environment. There's of course, sociological and, you know, um, socioeconomic and different kind of contributors as well. And then there's this hormonal part. And so the biggest breakthrough that has been in, and this is coming from someone just so everyone listening knows, like I am a cardiologist but um, I definitely I'm very involved in nutrition science and um, research with nutrition science, and I am vegan personally, and I do recommend a plant predominant diet, which can be very helpful. And I use this first line in all of my patients, you know, recommending healthy lifestyle change. But that doesn't have to be a dichotomy with medication, meaning it doesn't have to be one or the other. People try to make it so black and white, when in reality. There are medications that can be life-changing for our patients who struggle with obesity. And so in June, the FDA approved, and I have no ties with this company at all. The FDA approved a medication called Wegovi, which is uh, semaglutide. People may know this as Ozempic, which was, uh, it's the same exact medication except a different dosage. Ozempic was used for diabetes, but is FDA approved for obesity. So the people who generally, um, that were in the, Trial called the STEP trial. It was a BMI of 27 plus comorbidities or a BMI of 30 with no comorbidities. So it's semaglutide is a GLP1 receptor agonist. And what's really interesting and why this has changed the way I view obesity is because the science behind it actually tells us a lot. So what a GLP1 receptor agonist does is it slows gastric emptying in the stomach, but it also, there are receptors in your hypothalamus in the brain that Um, it affects too. So it's actually calming down those cravings, the um, need to eat more that may be driven by things that are beyond just self-control and self-discipline that are actually hormonal. And so the step trial over 68 weeks, people were started on Wegovi and the doses stepped up. And they lost 20% of their body weight wow. in a, a bit over a year. Now, if you compare that to the other um, medication trials or any diet trial there is, they make basically peak around 5% weight loss. So 20% blows everything away. Besides gastric bypass, this is the most weight loss we've seen from any dietary, um, from any sort of medical intervention. Is it something that they're able to keep off or do they need to stay on this medication long term? It's a great question. So, um, so far they've had one, I believe it's been one follow-up trial um, to see people off of it for a year and they regained back. I want to say it was like 7 to 10% of their weight. I can't remember exactly, so don't quote me on that. But the truth is, is so patients will ask me this exact question, which I think is an amazing and important question. So if you have obesity with comorbidity, so say if you come in and you have a BMI of 30, you have hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and you're on multiple medications for this. And people can tell you a thousand times, diet, exercise, do all these things. And you're trying, you know, I have patients that are like, I'm trying, you know, they join uh, Weight Watchers or they, you know, see our registered nutritionists because my office has multiple registered nutritionists or they see, um, uh, exercise physiologists and they still struggle. What I try to explain to them is that this could be something that they need more help with. And so when they go on this medication, and um, all my patients since June who have started this medication have lost drastic amounts of weight, they end up re- replacing often a lot of their other medications. Mm. If mm. you lose 20% of your body weight, oftentimes your hypertension will go into remission. Your diabetes will go into remission if it's tight two. You have more energy to start your lipids improve. I mean, a lot of things. So to me, do we, we don't have long-term data with, you know, how much, how long do they have to stay on it? Because we also don't know with regards to the neural pathways in the brain. What if someone's on this medication for a certain amount of time and then their brain kind of reworks some of the neural pathways where they don't have those cravings the same way anymore. And to me, the biggest factor that's most important to me is hearing my patients say who've been plagued with dieting, with diet culture and struggling with obesity and weight related conditions is hearing them say after they started this medication, they feel free.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And that's because they don't have to think about what am I going to eat later? How many calories is it? I can't eat this. Those thoughts have just disappeared for them because the medication takes care of that. And so to me, that quality of life is the most important thing. And mm-hmm. I've noticed my patients have so much better quality of life, not even just from the physical improvements from weight loss, but also from the mental health aspects. So um, to me, this is a game changer, and I think we need to destigmatize obesity and, um, you know, look at it as something where, yes, diet and exercise are important. I'm a huge proponent of diet change, all of these things, but don't blame the individual who can't lose weight and say that they're not trying enough or that they don't have enough discipline. There's so much, it is so much more complex than that. Yeah.
2: It almost reminds me of like uh, the conversation around mental health. Like you could, you can go to therapy, you can exercise, you can do the self-care, you can journal, you can do all these things. But for some people, for a lot of people, they need a little bit of extra help. Absolutely. They need an SSRI or they Absolutely. need something to kind of get them back on track. Absolutely. Um, so it gets easier. So it kind of takes that edge yeah. off. So maybe they can have more energy and more time to go to therapy, to do all these other things, to kind of like lift them up. Yeah. That's so interesting. I've never heard of this medication. And yep. I, I mean, I'm sure we'll start to see it more often, but that really yeah. is a, a, really incredible.
1: And it's being – so GLP-1 receptor agonists now are being studied in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and all these other – so. The best part about it too, so me as a cardiologist, you know, I don't love a lot of the weight loss medications um, just because um, obviously- well, got like fentermine and, and- You know, I well, just worry about some of the contraindications with a lot of cardiovascular patients. This is a medication that we don't have to have that worry. There's very few contraindications and they're not cardiac. If anything, you know, improving cardiometabolic health is incredibly important for our cardiovascular patients. You know, to me, my view as a as a cardiologist is if I have a patient coming in with high blood pressure, high lipids, and um, you know their BMI is over thirty, and they um, are struggling with their weight. To me, to just throw blood pressure medication at them, throw lipid medication at them, and sometimes medications are needed, you know. Mm-hmm. But to do all of that and know that this medication exists, and you know, not work on a comprehensive lifestyle approach which includes medical therapy plus the CR registered dietitian is so is such a disservice to the patient because. A lot of times, and not always, but a lot of times in primary prevention, so that's before someone has heart disease, that a lot of times the having high blood pressure or having high lipids can be just temporary. And you can get a patient to put those into remission. Even type 2 diabetes, we know we can put into remission with weight loss. So it gives me a lot of hope. I think that sometimes people view being on medication as a failure. And I just think that we need to change the conversation of that because- you can't control your genetics, and lifestyle will always be important. But sometimes medications can help you make those lifestyle changes. Yeah,
0: and this is in no way talking about body shaming or like fat shaming, no. anything like that. Like my my fear is so rooted in not having my mother here. Yeah, because I've seen what carrying all this excess weight is has done to her. Right, and there's a lot of people who struggle with. There's a lot of very full-figured, healthy, big bodies that are, are just that. They are very healthy. They are stronger than most people I know. You know, they work out. That's just their compositional makeup. This conversation is focusing around people who have major comorbidities associated with that weight.
1: And I tread lightly here. And I do like to clarify because um, I'm very aware of the body positivity movement, which I think is beautiful and important. And I think that no one should ever be shamed or stigmatized for their weight, no matter what. But I am a cardiologist and I am incredibly evidence-based. I'm the chair of the nutrition committee for the American Society of Preventive Cardiology. I'm on the ACC nutrition committee. I am literally the scientific evidence that the only thing I'm loyal to is the scientific evidence in my patients. Um, And so that is what I prioritize. And the issue is, is that sometimes people take it too far where they say, well, you, you know, obesity, there's nothing health wise that can happen with obesity because of within body positivity, where they kind of minimize the health effects. And we actually do know from robust data that People who do have excess adiposity are more likely to develop comorbidities. And when we, um, yes, you can be healthy and have excess adiposity, but we do know that there's, scientifically speaking, there's kind of a gradient where they may have subclinical um, changes in their um, in their health, and that we know that it does kind of. The more adiposity you have, the more likely you are to develop type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, coronary artery disease, hypertension, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So this is not to shame anyone because no one should be shamed for how they look or anything. This is literally just about health because to me, if we can prevent heart disease is the number one killer of men and women by far, and it... You know, it's very heartbreaking for me to see people getting younger and younger with heart attacks instead of focusing more on prevention when people are younger because people are getting younger with with heart disease because of these risk factors. You know, over 80% of heart disease is lifestyle related. So, um, that's why I think it's important. So it is, it's a tight balance because I love the body positivity movement for so many reasons and no one should feel ashamed of how they look. But I do think it's important to partner with a physician you trust and a physician who makes you feel comfortable and a physician who makes you feel supported And make sure that you are keeping track of those important markers, like your hemoglobin A1C, your lipids. Make sure you take your family history into account and everything like that and get evaluated so that way you're safe.
2: And like you just mentioned, heart disease is the leading killer of men and women in this country. Mm -hmm. and the sad thing is everybody on social media these days is a, is a wellness guru.
1: Yeah. And, um, (laughs) the truth. I'll tell you, Danielle,
2: you are the, you know, the queen of evidence-based. Oh, thank you. And, you know, it's, it's almost like funny to me because again, like everyone's a, is a wellness guru on social media. Like I can't imagine the struggles that you have as a, you know, you've been to school for how many years you've been through a cardiology residency, a fellowship, You are extremely accomplished. And to like see so many people on social media spreading the newest diet trend, the newest wellness trend, it's not even just, I can't imagine, like frustrating from your perspective, but it's dangerous to people. Dangerous.
1: Yeah, no, it is dangerous. It's totally dangerous, especially when we see, you know, I think with COVID, a lot of it came out too. People saying that insert dietary paradigm here. My diet, whether it's plant-based or whether it's keto or whether it's paleo, my diet will prevent me from getting COVID. And we're like, no, you know, that's just <laughs> yeah. not true. Or there was medical medium saying his celery juice cleanses. Oh, Jesus. Like, medical you know medium. I mean? It's just there's So it's like every day there's something, you know, inaccurate. And I find there's a huge disconnect between physicians who are evidence based and the general public on social media which makes sense cuz a lot of doctors are busy and they are if you're doing research in a lab you don't really have time to be sharing on social media but oftentimes a lot of the people with the loudest voices are the ones who have a gimmick to sell or you know something like that and so it's just I'm trying to meld those those two worlds but it's tough yeah it's it's frustrating the worst part is when you see it harming someone which i've seen from all diet tribes. I've seen even from from vegan, I've seen vegan patients who've been harmed by vegan misinformation. I've seen keto patients harmed by keto misinformation. It's when people think that their diet can prevent everything and they refuse guideline-directed medical therapy when it's indicated, or they refuse any sort of um, medical intervention is when people get hurt.
2: I think I might know the answer to this question because I know your personal dietary choices. Yeah. But what is the most ridiculous diet that you've seen?
1: So, okay. So, for anyone listening who may think, okay, she's biased because she's vegan, I promise you, if <laughs> you go to my Instagram, I actually rip apart uh, misinformation from the plant based community as well. So, I'm an equal opportunity. Uh, I'm equal opportunity with my critiques. <laughs> but I will say the most ridiculous diet trend I've seen is carnivore diet. I mean, this is wild. Like, there's this new trend that's called nose to tail carnivore, where they say that vegetables are toxic. And then it's, of course, it's been on Joe Rogan a bunch of times. They Fuck say Joe Rogan. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I can't. I hate it's, that dude. I
0: know.
1: They say they just eat nose to tail carnivore oh. and they cannot eat vegetables. They don't eat anything that isn't like straight from the animal, the liver, the pancreas, like everything. And so the organs, all of it. And the problem is, is that when you eat a diet that's that high in saturated fat and with no dietary fiber, because fiber only exists in plants, um, you see there. LDL cholesterol go through the roof, and it puts them at an incredibly high risk for cardiovascular disease. Mind you, not eating any dietary fiber and no phytonutrients puts them also at an elevated risk for cancer. There's a reason why our cancer guidelines and our cardiology guidelines for nutrition are the same. Eat a plant predominant diet. Doesn't have to be exclusively plant based, but just lots of fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, and then um, you know, if you do eat animal protein, fish or lean meat. And um, just focus on getting a, pla- a lot of plants in there. But that's for both cardiology and cancer. The carnivore diet goes against both of those. Oh, Jesus.
2: <laughs> the first time I heard about the car- carnivore diet, I literally thought it was a joke. Me too. I was like, this isn't real. Like This yeah. is that the only funny. thing I will say. If you are going to kill an animal, I'm
0: glad that you're using all parts. Sure that's <laughs> yeah, true. But- could
1: you imagine if
2: the entire world was on a
1: but- carnivore diet that like it's- makes
0: me
2: want to throw up?
1: Yeah. Ugh. I mean, crazy. like,
0: I I know my... My body, like especially when I'm menstruating, I've I do eat predominantly yeah. lots of fruits, veggies, grains. I do need some meat. But I'm very conscious of where that meat is coming from, but especially on my period, I need kale and red meat. <laughs> like that is what my body. <laughs> needs because I get so iron deficient. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I've tried just the kale on its own. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, I hate it. I'd need a little bit. Yeah. No, there's
1: (laughs) there's the the iron um, issue. So the other problem with um, plant-based diets, my critique with the people who promote like plant-based diets as a cure-all is that they miss out on the fact that it has to be a well-planned plant-based diet. Right. So just cutting out animal products does not necessarily mean a diet's going to be healthy. You can get plenty of iron on a plant-based diet, but it has to be a well-planned plant-based diet. Same with protein. Too many plant-based advocates will say, oh, like, don't even worry about how much protein you need. No, that's not correct, too. We Mm -hmm. actually know from the data that if you want to get the same muscle synthesis from a plant-based diet versus an omnivore diet, you actually can get the same amount of protein, but you want to make sure you're getting 10 grams of leucine with with each meal, which is a type of amino acid we see in tofu. It just has to be well-planned is the Mm -hmm. entire point. So seeing a registered dietitian can help um, and, you know, getting help. But too often people just say, oh, just eat, you know, um, you know, oh, just eating vegan is going to make you healthy. And that's not true either. So yeah, it's totally, there's so much nuance to it. And the the issue with the carnivore diet is, so I also don't want to, gaslight anyone that's had improvements on it. And I will give them this is that, you know, there are people who will say, okay, well, I improved, I had autoimmune disease or I had X, Y, or Z. There's anecdotes online of people saying I improved on the carnivore diet. Well, if you think about what the carnivore diet is, it's essentially an elimination diet besides one thing, right? And so it's not the meat they're eating that's healing them. It's that they eliminated X, Y, or Z that they may either have a food allergy to, they may have issues with, et cetera. Or they were eating a standard American diet beforehand and then they switched to this, and that even was an improvement for them. But at the end of the day, you know, it's we know that even short-term wise, from biomarkers, um, their lipids getting out of control or insulin resistance, or long term, obviously, um, with some of the cancer data we have from red meat and um all the other things that are concerning, that it's just not optimal for health. So that's why the diet fats can be dangerous. Um, and I look at anyone that is uh, subscribing to them as these individuals, to me, are just looking for health. They're just looking to feel better. They're looking for, you know, they're looking for what we all are looking for, which is health and happiness. And it's not their fault, who I blame are the purveyors of misinformation mm. who are profiting off right. of it. Because Joe Rogan. you know, it's <laughs> it's not the individual's fault. Totally. Right?
2: Danielle and I were we were actually just talking about this earlier and how we're both guilty of it. It's like falling into a different wellness trend. And like for me, clean beauty, like, (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh my God. Clean beauty. Yes. I like, I put foundation on my face every day. I don't want to be putting chemicals on my face. Like there's so many things that I've bought into as well. So like, I don't want to talk that like, you know, I know all the answers because I have definitely fallen for a lot of wellness trends.
1: But I will say a lot of medical grade skincare products are very clean. No, so what's interesting about clean beauty is when I – so I too fell into the clean beauty situation. Like I was like, oh, course, well, obviously, you know. It made me realize how much I don't know outside of my specialty because I was yeah. like, I have no idea. And so then I started to follow some of these really incredibly evidence-based dermatologists on Instagram where I was like, oh, this is all BS. <laughs> And I had no idea because I was spending so much more money on things that were quote unquote clean and natural and natural. Mm -hmm. So when I bring my podcast back, I'm actually going to have an episode with the dermatologist trying to go through all the clean beauty information, all that stuff. Because I cannot wait for that. Yeah, because I had no idea, but it made me realize I was like, wow, this gives me perspective because people that are falling into this with diet, you know, being a cardiologist, you know, and being very involved in nutrition, this is like my day in day out like research, everything, all the things I do, and. I had no idea about clean beauty and I was buying into it. I'm a physician, you know? And Mm -hmm. so I don't blame anyone. It's it's so easy to fall into it. I think what happens with a lot of companies with why this is why I think a lot of companies end up being clean and also why a lot of companies end up being non-GMO isn't because the science shows it's better. It's because if they don't do it, They lose out, even if it's nonsense, they lose out on a huge portion of the market. Right,
2: it's their profit they're worried about. It's the profits they worry
1: about. And so they just do it just to do it, even though the, you know.
2: Right, because now you have like brands like, I mean, I don't want to call them out, but like, I'm pretty sure like Neutrogena has like clean whatever now. And it's like, really Neutrogena? Are you really making like a totally different formula? Or are you just like mixing a few things around and smack and clean on the label? Do you have like real tea tree oil in that? Right, uh. and it's like, it's not like to say clean is better than not clean. It's just like, they're just- buying they just need the profit and they know if they're not evolving and changing with what the consumer wants it's a trend they're gonna miss out (laughs) right right
1: but you know what i want to say to women listening is that you know like our generation like we can be smarter than these companies like we can actually look at the evidence and look to healthcare professionals and we can we can look past these influencers that are trying to sell us nonsense and look towards the actual science. We can be smarter than this. Like we don't need to fall into all these trends. Like I realize that I myself have fallen into, especially with derm stuff and, um, and things that I don't know. And I, I, I feel like the biggest thing people ask me is, well, how do I know what's a good trusted resource? Because it's so hard to know. Cause it's definitely not determined by someone having an MD after their name, because we all know plenty of MDs mm-hmm. that have spread COVID mm-hmm. misinformation, anti-vax stuff. To me, the bottom line is that if it's not in a guideline for that specialty, ignore it. Meaning now that I've, um, uh, you know, I finished my medical training and I've, I know plenty of people that have been on our cardiology guidelines committees, and I know how guidelines are made and work, It's unbelievable to me how much you can convince yourself. Like when I remember in the beginning of me being vegan, I was like, oh, the only reason why people aren't recommending plant-based diets is because they just don't know, or there's like some bias. And then I realized, wait, 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 that's not true. It's that the actual scientific data shows that a plant predominant diet is perfectly healthy. A fully plant-based diet is perfectly healthy, but you don't have to be 100% plant-based to be healthy. You can eat some animal products. And so- to me, I think learning the um, the science made me realize, oh wow, the guidelines are correct. And so, same thing with dermatology. So, you know, as soon as something evolves and we have more data to support it, it makes it into guidelines. So, even with derm, if you went on, you know, up to date, like which is like a medical, you know, even if you went on up to date and you looked up the dermatology guidelines for acne treatment or for you know anything you'll see the things that are really guideline based. You'd be like, oh, wow. So this is where I'm really going to get the best information for what's been proven with randomized controlled trials and with actual data. So is it easy for someone not in medicine to read and find guidelines? Totally. It is not super easy. I, I understand that. But if you ever feel like wondering what the professionals who are actually following the evidence do, it is worth googling just because guidelines you you can trust and they evolve mm-hmm. with new research. Well,
0: I want to pivot a little bit here. Yeah. Danielle, you kind of you kind of like just said it, but you're bringing your podcast back. Yeah. I'm so stoked for you. Not only are you bringing your podcast back, but you're on Podcast Nation with yeah. us. Yes. Like, I literally just found this out. Yay. And I'm even more excited for you now what? because you're with the
2: best team. I'm so excited. Yes. I'm so thrilled. You're in the podcast nation, fam. I can't wait. Hey, so, fam. So you took a little bit of time off. Oh, yeah. A lot. So, like what, a year and a half. so wh- what was the reasoning behind just taking some time off and why are you coming back? I mean, I'm super excited. The podcast is coming back. I'm sure your listeners have been waiting for this. Yeah. And the name,
1: everything, dish. Well, okay. So name, we still haven't decided because it was called Nutrition Rounds, which I loved, but that was when it was mostly about nutrition. Now I'm going to expand it to being about, I'm going to be interviewing experts in all different kinds of wellness trends to kind of demystify and debunk a lot of the Goop or push, uh, you know what stuff? Poosh. Oh, that's a uh, Kourtney Kardashian's version of Goop. That's oh, not. very good, very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So, kind of to figure out, like, because when I clean beauty was kind of one of those things where I fell into that trap because I'm not a dermatologist, and I was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to interview experts that I respect that are scientific authorities in various specialties and get the evidence-based answers for things like, should we be buying this product? Is this worth it? Is there evidence for it? Or is it just nonsense? You know, um, I'm definitely gonna have a huge emphasis on nutrition with some really brilliant uh, nutrition scientists, including Kevin Hall who's the director of nutrition research at the National Institute of Health. Wow. Yeah, Kevin's someone I collaborate with. No big with. deal. <laughs> just N- the head of nutrition at the NIH. N- 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 I'm like, National Institute NAH. okay, yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah, so Amazing. I'm gonna have a bunch of really um interesting people. I'm gonna have um dermatologists. I'm gonna have Jen Gunter who does a lot of women's health debunking. You know, there's so many feminine oh, cool. products oh that my God, are out yeah. there. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't believe how many of them can actually cause more irritation. All things she's an OBGYN and she's gonna debunk a bunch of the women's health um stuff. Oh, we're gonna do an wow. episode on menopause too and on everything. So this, so to me, this is like a lot of it. I wanted to bring it back because I realized there's so many questions I have outside of my specialty that I feel like I've been duped with these wellness trends too, you know? And I feel- That would like, be a good name. I've been duped too. <laughs> <laughs> I've been duped. I do feel
2: I feel like,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's- There you go. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first.
1: (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But I do think that if you subscribe to Nutrition Rounds, then it'll carry over Mm -hmm. for when the new name comes out. Perfect. But yeah, so we haven't decided yet. So yeah, I decided to bring it back because so many people were requesting it. And I realized that I was doing a lot of this debunking on my Instagram and I was like, it would be so great to actually interview experts in these various fields for the questions I have, the questions women in general have. Mm -hmm. We're so taken advantage by marketing. Oh, me totally. myself, oh, yeah. me myself included. Like in I mm-hmm.
2: cringe thinking about how much money I've spent on supplements in my life. Oh, wow. like it makes me want to vomit. Your, yeah, expensive, expensive
0: urine. urine. Oh, like that. what it is. I also think about how damaging it is. I mean, you have these feminine washes, yep, too, which I think is one of the worst things, especially for teen um, girls, teen girls mm-hmm. who are like
1: absolutely prepubescent. Or um, society I'm just sorry. teaches them that it's not normal to have a normal-smelling vagina, which is ridiculous. Yeah, that every vagina is supposed to smell like a rose field. No, yeah, Jen Gunter is going to do a whole episode on this. I am very. Join. She's amazing. For this. Yeah, yeah. And so there's just so many. And if anyone has any suggestions of things you want debunked, go for it. I mean, even things like, like, of course, like psychiatry and mental health. I think, unfortunately, wherever people struggle in life, there's someone out there ready to take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's frustrating to me is because I feel like we're all susceptible to this. Um, and whether it's diet, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's mental health and, you know, different programs people have, or whether it's beauty or even like teeth whitening. I mean, there's so many things and, it's hard. You can't know everything about every specialty. So I just want to try to like wrangle some of the top experts and all these various things and, and bring them in and knowing in the, in the vein of knowing that science is subject to change. So I always want to preface with each podcast episode, like a year from now, the data could be different. I think it's just evolving with it. Unfortunately, there's just, literally so many people out there ready to make money off of people who are suffering, whether it's with acne or whether it's with weight or whether it's with depression. And so I think our generation, I think we can get the right information out there.
0: I I love that. I'm hopeful for that. Um, that's why I'm so grateful you were able to come on the pod today Yay. because I love how evidence-based you are. Thank it's- you. It's so needed. You, you don't get evidence-based research on Facebook.
1: <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> Facebook. It's, it's just like, can't It's do funny it.
2: what you said earlier about typically the people doing research in labs don't have time to be posting also on over social media. Totally. And it like sparked this idea in me. And, you know, as a cardiologist, I'm curious, like, do you feel this like general mistrust almost now in like Western medicine that like because of social media and because of these like wellness trends that for some reason now, and like I've felt this as a nurse, I've like. I don't know, like maybe it's just like kind of being in the wellness space and like yeah. seeing things in the wellness space that for some reason, like, Western medicine like isn't good anymore. Like they're trying to screw you over. They're trying to make you sicker. The doctors are trying to make money off of your illness and get more money if they prescribe you things. And doctors aren't really trying to get the root to the root causes of your illness. Root cause
1: (laughs) is my favorite phrase that they. It's like it's like wait when when did we
2: who's who's saying this? Like when did that happen in Western medicine? Since
0: when are we? I mean, when are we not trying to find the root cause of your problem?
1: totally and i think that so to me this is like a multi-layered kind of like an onion sort of issue is that there is some level of how traditional medicine rvu based medicine is fractured and the fact that patients i think generally feel unheard so i think that the issue is is that you know in an insurance based system you're going to your primary care doctor they have 15 minutes with you maybe if that to go through all of your medications all of your current issues and And then they got to go write you a script and go, um, you see a specialist it's similar. And that's not the physician's fault. Um, physician reimbursement is the lowest it's been ever like, you know, and it's, it's definitely not like the nineties when physicians were making gazillions of dollars. And so this is just the way the healthcare system has become. Unfortunately, physicians are ruled by insurance companies and this makes the visits shorter and the, uh, And, you know, physicians, most physicians graduate with $400,000, $200,000 of debt and of med school and people go into medicine not to make money anymore. It's because they genuinely want to be you know, doctors. And so the issue is, is that um, I do think patients in that setting and understandably so feel unheard. And if you are going to a physician that, you know, is super um, rushed and does feel like they're not listening to you. Not to attribute that to the physician being, you know, they may not be a bad person, they may not be someone that, you know, uh, hates patients, they may just be totally strapped with time. They're human too. But I do try to emphasize that if you do feel that way, always go get a second opinion. Go find a physician that you do jive with. Find you can get a third opinion, like you are a consumer as a patient, and find a physician who does, you know, listen to you and hear you out. I find a lot of the people who do fall for some of the functional medicine stuff um, online, you know, it's because they feel unheard. Um, They don't feel like that Western medicine is necessarily, you know, really finding answers to some of their their questions. The problem is with something like functional medicine is that they're not giving them real answers. They've actually made up diagnoses like these parasites that they claim. Like if you look at some of the wellness influencers, they're claiming everyone has these parasite infections. Excuse me. I missed that in my <laughs> boards for internal medicine uh, when, where I did infectious disease rotations as a medicine resident at Temple for three years. Uh, I didn't cover just, that in med school? No, no, not in med school either. Like, um, and you know, it's, So all of these other things that they claim and all these supplements that have zero, zero benefit for individuals that- But can cause
0: major bleeding risks
1: for surgery. (laughs) Major bleeding risks, major side effects, including liver failure, kidney failure, interactions with medications. And so it's such a grift. So yes, the, the traditional medical system is fractured for sure. But the answer sadly is not this- wellness kind of trope where people are selling you supplements or selling you a detox or selling you you know any sort of parasite cleanse it's it's something harder which anyone listening is going to be like may roll their eyes but it's just finding a primary care which honestly Find a primary care provider that's a nurse practitioner, that's a PA, that's a physician, that truly anyone you connect with does not have to be an MD by any means. Someone you connect with that you feel like you can establish a good rapport with. You can tell anything to you feel heard and have also feel free to say, Hey, listen, I don't feel like I got to address all of my issues during this visit. Can we schedule a follow up and have a follow up with them in two weeks? Have a follow up with them every month. You know, just be heard. It can be. It can be various different types of medical professionals, but someone who follows the guidelines, if the person you are seeing or following on Instagram or the physician or the healthcare provider you're seeing in the office is someone that knows something that no one else knows, your red flag should go up. Your spidey sense should go off because... There is no way that Joe Functional Medicine MD Rogen? from Instagram knows something <laughs> that every cardiologist in the American College of Cardiology, the European Society of Cardiology, and you know the world does not know. Right. You know, it's red flag. It's like that flags. new, it's like that new,
2: like uh, Twitter and uh, yeah. Instagram, like yeah. sensation. The red flags. What are other red flags? Maybe oh, yeah. maybe, like, maybe the
1: title of this. If be you're red selling flags something, like the if they're just community. selling something
2: in general, like if they're you go on their website totally. and there is a something in a pill.
1: Well, I would say if they're selling something that where they're saying that they're like, oh, this doesn't work, but take my supplements, buy my supplements, buy my detox, 100%.
2: Have you done a post about this? Like I feel like you need to do a red flag I post. I know I need do a red flag yeah. post. You're
1: right. You're right. You should. So um, for sure, if they're selling something, if they're going against expert scientific consensus, for anyone listening, when, when there's guidelines made, right? So for example, nutrition guidelines, there are people from all dietary tribes that are professionals, we're talking about MDs, PhDs, RDs, nurse practitioners that form a guideline committee. They can have no conflicts of interest when they form the guidelines for American College of Cardiology and AHA, no conflicts of interest. There's like 20 individuals who have to agree on the rigor of the evidence to support each recommendation, and it's graded by a level of evidence, meaning this is, um, you know, very highly supported by evidence, including randomized controlled trials and prospective cohort studies, systematic reviews, things like that. And then they debate it, they go through, they grade the level of evidence, and then they make recommendations. So what is, you know, Keto Joe who says <laughs> Keto Joe. Um, you you cannot eat an apple or a banana because it's going to give you diabetes or insulin resistance. It's like, so Keto Joe knows more than, than every cardiologist in the American College of Cardiology or the, you know, the European Society of Cardiology. It's just bonkers to me because I am someone who knows a lot about nutrition and I would never put myself in the position where I know more than expert consensus because right. there's 20 physicians that are making up those guidelines and scientists and, and registered dietitians. And this is actually not a hate on keto, by the way. Um, I think certain people like low carb diets, you can do a healthy low carb diet that's still plant predominant. Um, but you don't, but carbs are not evil and that's a longer, more nuanced conversation. But anyway, yeah. um, yeah. So I think that that's, that's a red flag when someone knows something that goes completely against expert consensus. Like, I mean, we're seeing that with vaccines right now, right? Totally. hmm Like these small population of people are saying, of course, the ACIP or the NIH or, you know, all of these people are lying. You know, it's so silly. Or the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's like, why would the American Academy of Pediatrics, these are people, pediatricians are people who have dedicated their lives to children. Mm -hmm. Why would they support something that harms children? Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
2: Everyone wants to think that they know something that nobody else knows. (laughs) Exactly. And you know what I've
1: realized? The more I know... The more I realize the more I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. I've become so humbled by speaking to expert scientists in my own field. So
2: totally. Are we so are we safe to add that to the red flag post? Like carbs are bad.
1: Yes. <laughs> Har- yes. Cause yeah, people like literally, there's people who will be like, My trainer at the gym told me I can't eat carrots anymore. They have too many carbs. I'm like, carrots? bananas. <laughs> That's that's all I eat. That's, yeah. If
2: someone's I, selling, telling you you can't eat fruit, like oh, and yeah. vegetables, run. yeah. Run, Red flag. run, 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 Red flag. run, run run.
1: <laughs> run,
0: run, 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 run. Oh my god, that was so much fun! Make sure you follow along with Dr. Billardo on Instagram at Danielle Bellardo for updates on her new podcast. I love her misinformation debunking brain so much. That's all for this week, guys. Big thank you to our team at Podcast Nation, without which this podcast would just not be possible. Truly. Thank you to our WOMED community. Jack and I love you more than you know. Till next week, WOMED out.